You're listening to Toronto's number one real estate podcast, powered by Watson Estates. The most successful local real estate investing starts right here, right now. Here's your host, broker, investor, and social media influencer, Bradley Watson. Good morning, investors. Bradley here from Watson Estates. Today is Monday, May 4th. That means it is May the 4th. And you know what May the 4th means? They're not dolls, they're action figures. Maybe you guys had awkward conversations like that with your parents as you grew up. If you do, I hope you guys have a wonderful day and enjoy it. But today, we're not going to spend too much time there. We're going to be jumping right into real estate, Toronto real estate to be exact. We are Google's number one real estate podcast and it's because we're putting out awesome content and the content isn't mine. I mean, I'm putting it all together for you guys in a nice clean package, but this is information coming out in our news outlets that I'm sharing with you on a daily basis. And today we got some cool stuff. We're going to start off talking about the pandemic and how it's going to change buyers and what they look for in a home. It comes from a column from the Toronto Sun, which I really like and I want to share with you. Then we're going to jump into some of the comments that I get from our viewers I love to praise our viewers because you guys are what makes this channel so successful and I'm shocked by the growth that we've experienced in just a short period of time. Honestly, in less than a month, we've doubled the number of listeners and it is just going off the rails. So let's keep this train rolling. And at the end of the day, we need daily information out there. There is a need for it because let's face it, I like this stuff too. And if I can't find it, I'm sure you guys are having trouble finding it. So hopefully this is a great place to call home and to learn what is happening in our market. And today I want to share some of those comments. I wanted to get a nice little group of them together before we put it out. And today I think is the day. And then I want to just briefly talk about the stock market and why it has not crashed in the same way as our economy seems to be down in the dirt. And I want to talk about that a little bit. And if you are a investor, you'd probably trump me on this conversation. But for a lot of people who invest strictly in real estate and haven't really been in tune with what's going on from monetary policy and and over the border just south of us, I want to talk about what has kind of been going on. I've kind of talked about it over time and it really leads to the impression that people have of our economy. So we're going to we're going to jump into the stock market a little bit and talk about the discrepancy between the economy and what the stocks are doing. And today or this week I am so excited because it is Treb Stats week and I can't wait for those numbers to come out. It'll be any day now. It's the 4th. So I'm thinking in the next day or two, we're going to get those numbers coming out. And so make sure you're subscribing to our channel if you have not already, because we're going to decipher that. And I'm so interested in hearing what that message looks like. So this is such an interesting question. Will the pandemic change what buyers look for in a home? And it kind of comes off that kind of conversation seems like, well, duh, right? Like you'd think it would. I guess the question is how? And what I liked about this column that came out of the Toronto Sun just, I think this was yesterday this came out. I think it's very interesting. And I liked some of the points she brought up because you know what? I think it actually answers a question that we had in the last couple days in our podcast as well. And you'll see that in just a second. So here's the here's the column. Seven weeks into COVID-19 lockdown, it's becoming difficult not to look at the world around us and wonder if life as we know it will ever be the same. What initially felt like a bizarre but temporary upending of our routines and behaviors has now taken on a kind of rhythm for many of us. Conference calls while in hour-long lineups at the grocery store, important Zoom meetings punctuated by tiny voices demanding crackers, and a newfound distinction between sweatpants and fancy sweatpants when getting dressed to, quote, go to work in the morning. But what happens when restrictions are eased, workplaces open, and kids go back to school? Will that be the moment that life returns to normal? 
What seems most evident is the fact that now more than ever, one's home matters. And this person, by the way, who's writing the column is a real estate agent. It said they've been a realtor since 2011 in Toronto. And so I really like their take that they had on this. It's a very good point. So they've definitely like chewed on this for a while. This isn't just kind of, they didn't just spit this out. And I think it's pretty cool. So those who once favored the lifestyle perks associated with downtown living, smaller square footage and tiny backyards, but an easy commute and parks, restaurants, and coffee shops step from the door may be feeling regret right now. I can see this, right? We've seen this in the uptick in showings in cottage country in the more luxurious cottage country areas. And we've seen this in trends and we'll get to some of the stats we've talked about before as well. But we've seen this, that the condos seem to be hev more heavily impacted and less people buying those units. But at the same time, we're seeing outside of our city, we're seeing less investment from investors and money just being transferred. It's still a lot of money happening, a lot of purchases happening in the pre-construction side, but mostly from people who are moving in themselves, not from investors. And so people seem to be kind of wanting, we can see this trend, right, of people going outwards, at least in the short term. The question is, is how long will it last? The article continues, two months in, I've made my own peace with having to cook and clean up from what feels like 37 meals a day. I, amen to that. But what gives just about anything for a basement playroom to contain the chaos and mountains of battery operated plastic so I can work from the dining room table in relative peace, right? So that the, the idea that you separate yourself from your kids, it's space, especially if, if you have children in your downtown. I imagine that after this, my clients viewing properties will ask themselves, the kitchen's nice, but what would I want to be quarantined here? Right. And I've seen really funny memes and posts, right. Talking about the quarantine and like, can you see yourself here all the time? Really funny stuff, but it's true, right? Like we need to, we need to like our home. People might just sell their home at the end of this because they're like the hell with this house, right? I'm over it. It's the same reason you get, had an uptick in divorces in China when the lockdown opened up. Now that working remotely is not only feasible, but likely to be the new normal as social distancing remains our best defense against the virus for the foreseeable future. Will the willingness to be house poor in the city endure, right? Like you've got, you're spending all this money to live right downtown, but then you can't go anywhere. You're kind of restricted. So then maybe I can take my money and go a little further out, get more bang for my buck, but then also have a place where I can go for a walk and not be within two meters of people every couple of minutes. Will people be eager to leave the city now that the prospect of a hellish daily commute is no longer what's keeping them from taking the plunge? That's the other side, right? You're working. Your work is going to now be far more distanced, at least again in the moderate term, right? Even when everything opens up, people will want to work from home. Businesses are now reaping the rewards of not having to pay for a ton of office spaces. If they can kind of limit that, people stay at home and still be productive. This has kind of been a, a test of productivity for a lot of companies as well. And if the productivity has been maintained and people are able to work from home, then the question is, well, and, and I'll be honest with you, even before this, talking to people on, on a daily basis and different clients, a lot of people are starting to work from home more and more, even outside of like pre-COVID-19. And so I think this trend will continue and will continue quickly. Will once diehard city dwellers now be willing to expand their search to the suburbs where green space and backyard swimming pools are suddenly within their budget? How about the downsizers who would typically sell the family home and move into a condo for an easier lifestyle, right? This was a really big trend we saw, we, we were witnessing in the last couple of years. Think they'll still be keen to give up their backyards and barbecues in favor of riding small elevators and sharing amenities? Good point, right? Seniors, this is why I like this article. Very good points. One thing we can be certain of as we've been confronted by the vulnerabilities and failures of long-term care facility is that we'll now see a rise in multi-generational living. And then they go on to say that this is already the norm in Europe. Now that there is legitimate concerns around it, if Nana would even be safe in a, con 
congregated set it, setting, right? Like in, uh, in the seniors' homes, right? So if we can now have an opportunity, so now people are partnering with money, affordability for the youngsters is rough, but it's also rough for the seniors. And maybe there's been conflict in the past, but now it's like, you know what, maybe we're best to at least assist them and partner with them to protect them from having to go into one of these long-term care facilities. And when all starts to, I love this last point, so I'm just going to add it. It's just funny. I love it. And I can relate to it. And when all starts to feel too heavy, I try to stop and remind myself of all the simple things that I miss so much right now. Soon enough, real pants, patio lunches, and trips to the zoo will return to us. And when they do, I promise that I will never again take them for granted. That is so funny. Do you know how much I miss going to the zoo? Emily loves animals. And I, I, that's, that's probably one of the first places I'm going to want to go, actually, when, when hell freezes over and we can get out of this, uh, this little predicament we're in. And so just to kind of recap, because I talked about how we've been discussing this in the last few podcasts, just as a highlight, if you missed our Toronto Real Estate Podcast update early May 2020 video slash podcast, wherever you're listening, go back and check that one out. One of the things we talked about was this sales drop and this spread between condos and condo townhomes and low rise, right? Semis and detached. And it was, you'll you'll hear in the, in my voice, it was a mystery to me. Like, I don't know why that is. And this is part of, I guess, the authenticity of these podcasts. Like, I'm not trying to show that I know everything. Obviously, I'm in the market and I'm a little more savvy than the average person, but I'm still learning and I'm figuring it out too. And I'm relying on articles like this to try and decipher it for me, right? And this, I think, was a good one because the, the question of why is it that we see a 79% drop in condo apartment sales or 71% in condo townhome sales, why is that far ahead of a semi drop of 32% and a detached drop of 69%? Even at its best, detached to condo apartments is still a 10% difference. What could that be? And maybe this is one of those reasons, right? Maybe people are saying, well, you know what? I want to get, I'm going to eventually get in my condo or I don't want to live in a condo downtown. I want to go to the outskirt communities and maybe this is one of the trends we're experiencing. So that's why I like this article because although it's not necessarily facts and figures, we can, we can put it in light of the facts and figures we're reading in other articles and create a framework for maybe this is why, right? Maybe these are the trends that we're experiencing. Very cool stuff. All right, so I want to start to get into some of the comments that we've seen, and I get a bunch of, I think some people are very short, it's very easy to sit up behind a computer screen and leave comments, and that's fine, and I get it, you know, trolls exist, no problem, but we have some very savvy and smart people following our channels, and so I'm not one to hide from our comments, at least I'm not famous enough yet that I can run and hide from comments and get someone else to do it. But at this point, I, I love reading the comments because I love seeing what some of the input is and I like to share it with you guys as well. And some of them are valid points and I like to challenge people online as well. So immigrant, so this one comes from Time to Reflect. This was six days ago, going back just past, just under a week. Immigrant reality is dead for now. Let's give a thanks to China. Just give it time. Your industry will reopen soon, thanks to Justin Trudeau. It is time to have a prime minister who cares for the world's people more than his Canadians. It has nice men. So, so this is critiquing the prime minister in favoring immigration over Canadians. One of the things I thought was good to share on this particular, I actually saw an article in the last 24 hours that was from the Huffington Post. I'll share it with you. And I think it's a, a good counterpoint to that point. The Canadian housing market will stay down for years due to lower immigration report. Okay, so this is talking about what an impact of immigration will have. Immigration to Canada will fall in the wake of the pandemic, putting downward pressure on house prices, capital economics say. There is little agreement these days among the protagonist. Oh my goodness. Pregnus. What kind of word is this? Prognosticators. Oh my goodness. As to what exactly is headed for Canada's housing market. 
It's too early in the morning, guys. Come on. When I'm recording this, by the way, it's not even 8 a.m. I haven't even finished my coffee. Come on now. Several recent forecasts predict rising house prices this year, even amid massive job losses in a shrinking economy. And this is kind of talking what we've kind of been talking about in the last few days, right? So this possibility of us still having some kind of price growth year over year. But an economist at UK-based Capital Economics, maybe that's why. Maybe this is like some English thing and they're just overdoing it on us. Okay, we're not, our English isn't as good as yours, okay, guys? Canada's house prices are set to fall and stay down, quote, for years because the country can expect a decline in immigration levels. This is, an, this is why I like this article. It's an interesting point, okay? He predicts house prices will drop 5% during this crisis and with lower immigration levels in the years to come, both prices and sales will stay below their pre-COVID-19 levels for a prolonged period. Brown noted that immigration has slumped following four of the past five recessions as higher unemployment reduced the incentive to move. But that's not always the case. If Canada does relatively better than other countries in the crisis, it will still be a draw. So before I get into that, that's the opposing view, right? Like, oh, we're still going to be good. It is. This is a valid point because if you look back to any of our positive encouragement of why our market is so strong, one of the leading indicators is our immigration level. In three years, we top a million immigrants to Canada. And I don't know the exact percentage offhand, but it is a giant chunk that goes to Ontario and British Columbia like a very big chunk, it might even be half, goes to just those two provinces, maybe even more. So because of that, we really rely on immigration in order for us to prop up the housing market because of the demand. So the argument here is that based on what we've seen in past economic collapses and challenges and recessions or whatever, fill in the blank, whatever this is, that generally in the majority of cases, immigration levels tamper off. And if so, immigration is what's keeping us up because we know that if it was just based on natural birth, we would actually be in a declining population, by the way. So we we depend on it. So that's the that's the negative argument. That's very valid. I love that. Okay, so let's look at the other side. And this is kind of the, the idea that Canada will be a draw now. Okay, quote, for instance, immigration rose after the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 when Canada was relatively less affected than most countries. Okay. This was from a guy from HuffPost Canada. If immigration does fall, the housing market will be the hardest hit part of the economy, he said. Investors have based their brackets, house or condo purchases on the assumption that immigration will keep rents growing strongly, which is true, right? And we've seen a, a dampening of the rents as well lately. That will be a questionable assumption, even if restrictions on travel are soon lifted. Real-time data from rental listings sites suggest that Toronto rents have already fallen 3 to 5% since the crisis data or began, sorry, which is the pretty, a pretty big for a month. Now I, I was, I couldn't figure out what that was without going too far into it. So I'm going to leave it there. They're saying it's a three to 5% drop. I don't know if that is based on drop in rent amounts or drop in vacancies. Like, I don't, I don't know what that it wouldn't be a drop in vacancies, but an increase in vacancies. I don't know what they're trying to say, but they're saying that the rents are being hit, which we know we've seen that in other stats before as well. At present, Canada has closed its borders to non-residents with the exception of essential migrant workers. But unlike the U S which has suspended immigration during the crisis, Canada continues to process applications generally Canada is an accepting place of immigrants. And so I know that that was a really big decision to shut down our border for Canada. For decades, Canadian population growth came in roughly even parts from natural growth, births inside the country and immigration. So there's the thing, we're doubling our population. That's what I'm hearing there because of immigration from what's being born. But in recent years, with the birth rate declining and immigration rising, more than 80% of Canada's population growth has come from new arrivals. There it is, guys. 80% of population growth. So if the assumption, which is my assumption, maybe not for everybody, but my assumption is that population growth leads to price growth. 
um, if they're if they're eighty percent of the population growth, then immigration is a strong argument. Again, awesome article, and I thought I would add that to the comment. A couple more comments we got here. This is going to be the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. If this if this doesn't pull down house prices in an overinflated market with super high debt loads and high unemployment, nothing will. I will definitely be waiting to see how this plays out. That was from Matt Sky four days ago. So there you go. So so the, we get comments, and I love this, and I appreciate these comments. We get it on all spectrums, right? So this is taking more of a cautious approach, looking at the same of this. It is funny because we look at these exact same things, right? We got high debt loads, high unemployment. Tell me, guys, is this something that I've been hiding? No, right? We've got now he's calling it overinflated market. I don't know if I buy in, subscribe to the overinflated market argument, but there are a lot of people that hold that, so that's fine. You can have that. And so wait and see how this plays out. No problem. I think you and 90% of other buyers in Toronto are doing the same. Okay. Uh, I really appreciate my friend Baseline. He's very good at leaving comments. In fact, he has two comments I think that are worth noting here. Good job, man. Toronto GTA will see a massive surge in prices within the next five years. As history dictates, those that bought in 2010 are glad they did now, even though prices didn't take off till around 2012-13. So same as now, people buying now will be very happy come 2030 or slightly before 2027. And then he was doing some price matches and and the prices of them today, just giving some stats. If someone doesn't own their primary residence by 2022, they never will buy during the next 10-year run. Okay, well, I guess that leaves it up to the, the... it depends on how you look at it, right? Like if you look at other countries, we're not necessarily on the top of the list for prices, but I, I kind of get the affordability argument. I, I think that's what he's alluding to, which is totally true. Once the economy is out of the, uh, this is a different comment, by the way, in a different video, same same dude, good job baseline. Once the economy is out of the uncertainty phase is when investors start jumping back in and perhaps when interest rates will truly matter. Too early for low interest rates to matter just yet. I'll say give it three weeks. End of May, we shall see the market swing a little, hopefully to the positive. All depends if people start listing their homes, which is actually a good point. So this is one of the things he said. Why don't all sellers just pull their homes off the market and list only if 10 or less in the general area? Then we'd see a surge in prices all around the pandemic with one week. It's almost like he's like a kissing. I kind of get this. All agents should push that to their clients. Wait till next one sells before listing. That's a good idea in theory if we were kind of this like giant mind and we can kind of fix the economy. If that was the case, I guess we could fix all problems. Um, but yeah, that is the case, right? Like because you get an influx of listings, we also are, that's what affected the prices and the way that people are also pricing their homes. That Because there's a combination, right? So the first part is what he's saying here, which is the number of people that are posting their homes up and so they're sitting longer. But at the same time, it's also because of that, people are in less competition because the buyers have pulled back as well. So you we could also make the same argument on the buyer side is why don't we all just agree to go out and spend money, right? Like, why don't we all just agree to buy even though the market's down? So, but at the end of the day, everyone's looking out for their own self-interest and this is the way that markets kind of work. Uh, but very good point. I appreciate that. And then we're going to move on to one that came in just yesterday. And I think the, the trigger for why I wanted to post this as a topic, this uh, as a category with the comments, this guy comes from, this is called the, I, I assume it's a guy, but I don't know that maybe that's about a poor assumption. This girl will say this, this woman, the name is the truth. And they said there is a strong chance that there may be many foreclosures in the near future. How would that affect a post COVID market? Now, my, my reply there was, that's that's assuming foreclosures in the future, which in Canada we have power of sales. But regardless, let's let's use them as interchangeable terms. 
okay, so we're going to have foreclosures in the future. That was, there's a strong chance of that. My question back is, is where is that going to come from, right? Where are we going to see this increase in power of sales in Canada? And as soon as we know that, and how we'll be able to kind of calculate how many, right? I think the question right now is I don't see, and I've, I've mentioned this in past podcasts, I don't see fire sales. I don't see people dumping properties other than ones that have been caught in a purchase already, but not selling. But the moment we kind of know where people are going to be in a state of emergency, like maybe like we've seen, I've seen an article of a gentleman who owned a business, a small business who he must have had it in his name because when it went under his, he had to sell his home. That's probably one of the only articles I've seen where that has happened. And that seems to be a very specific scenario where he got stuck. But if we can find trends where people are getting caught, then tell me because I want to know because I want that buying opportunity too, right? Like it's not like we're running from these potentials of power of sales, but power of sales are designed to keep people in their homes and keep the equity in their pockets so that the business, the, the lenders can get their money back, but you don't lose all the equity that you have in your property. Unless we see home prices going down the toilet and people are being, being requested by lenders to bring in the money back, right? Like I'm not, I'm not going to let you have your line of credit anymore as an example give me back my money until that happens. I don't see there being a big influx of foreclosures and power sales and therefore a spiral, if you will, of the pricing. In fact, I'd say prices seem to be stabilizing from what I have kind of seen. But anyways, if, if in fact you guys are seeing, and this goes back to the truth as well, and anyone else that is leaving comments or, or following us, if you see places where there are power of sales or foreclosures, however you want to call it, popping up around us, tell us so that we can know as well so that we can plan accordingly and make money. Let's all do this together. I want to finish off on the question of why is it that we see a stock market difference, the pricing of stock market, maybe I'm referring this wrong, the Dow Jones, let's say, and the S&P, why is it that they're not down in the dirt in the same way that our economy is? Our economy shut down, we're pumping out $500 a week or whatever the emergency benefit is, I think that's what it is. And so we're propping everything up, we're spending money, and the states are spending trillions of dollars, it's just crazy, but yet for some reason, the stock market seems to have rebounded by as much as like 50% of where it was at on its on its highs, like from the drop. So the question is why? And here's, I, I've been waiting to do this as a topic because I wanted to hear from our friend Warren Buffett. And finally, Warren Buffett just spoke out, which is crazy because like, I, I think I, I'm just intrigued by what he does because he is, he kind of bailed everyone out in 2008 with loans and, and he makes a ton of money and is just a very savvy investor. And I mean, I think he's 89 or something now, but his company is a very conservative company in the way that they operate. And so they are able to take advantage whenever there is big declines. And so he's finally spoke out about what's happening in the market. And I find it so fascinating and it's definitely something worth mentioning here. Warren Buffett, this is from Bloomberg. Warren Buffett struck some of his famous deals, taking lucrative stakes in Goldman Sachs Group, General Electric Co. by swooping in when others panicked during the last financial crisis. He's treading more carefully this time around. With a record $137 billion of cash pileup up his Berkshire Hathaway Inc., that's his company, Buffett fielded questions over the weekend from shareholders who wanted to know why he hadn't acted as companies clamored for liquidity amid the pandemic-related shutdowns. This crisis is different, Buffett said. So he's, he's meeting with a bunch of shareholders for an annual meeting and he's getting all these questions and he's fielding them and he's giving a bunch of explanations on his thinking on them. So here, here's some of his quotes. We have not done anything because we don't seek anything that attractive to do. Interesting. Buffett said in his annual shareholder meeting, which was held by webcast, the deals in 2008, 2009 weren't done to make, quote, make a statement to the world. They seemed intelligent things to do and markets were such that we didn't really have much competition. Okay. Interesting. 
But as so this article continues, but as panic about the virus and shutdowns assaulted equities in March and even began to freeze debt markets, the Federal Reserve beat him to the punch with an unprecedented set of emergency measures. We'll talk about a couple of those in a minute. While Berkshire bought about or bought back 1.7 billion of its shares in the first quarter, it was a net seller of stocks through April as it shed stakes in four major U.S. airlines. So it pulled out of the airline industry. The approach seemed to put him in the camp of other notable investors who think markets may not have seen the worst of the impact from the pandemic in the markets, right? The stock market. And then at the end, it says, in the meantime, Berkshire companies keep throwing off earnings, building the $137 billion cash pile that's equal to nearly 31% of Berkshire's market value. So they are stockpiling a ton of money. Buffett remains cautious about the current crisis, saying the range of economic possibilities, quote, are extraordinarily wide. Very interesting. Still, he ended the meeting on his classic optimistic note that people should never bet against America. The panic in markets changed drastically when the Fed acted. This is the quote from Buffett, too. This is what I want to get into our next topic here and and lead us into what's been going on. Quote, talking about the markets, changed dramatically when the Fed acted. But who knows what happens next week or next month or next year? The Fed doesn't know. I don't know. And nobody knows, Buffett said. There's a lot of different scenarios that can play out. And under some scenarios, we'll spend a lot of money. And under under other scenarios, we won't. So this is this is what he's talking to, guys. This is what's been going on. The Federal Reserve has taken extraordinary steps. And we'll get into this in a second in an article that talks about it. To prop up the economy. They've the the roof is off. The spending is pretty much, according to the president, unlimited at this point to keep to buy back bonds, to keep corporate bonds, to keep businesses up. And there's even there has not happened yet, but another measure that could happen would be the purchasing of equities, which would just be crazy, where where the government could start to buy back uh, businesses and essentially become an owner in businesses. So interesting. But at this point, they've opened up corporate bonds and they're spending, 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 spending to prop up the economy like it didn't happen in 2008. There were bailouts in 2008, but not to this extent. This is crazy, the amount of spending. So. What's happening is there we've got this artificial propping up of the stock market that's just being led by the reserves, the central the central bank in the case of the United States. And ultimately, what I find when it comes to stock market, stock market is far more heavily influenced by American policy. This is why I'm bringing this up instead of Canadian monetary policy. Our, our policies are relevant, but it seems that the stock market is New York Stock Exchange pretty much dictates the pace for everybody else. And, and so the other thing that, I, okay, so let's get into this article instead of me talking about it. Let's listen to some of the experts. So this comes from marketsbusinessinsider.com. The article is called a buying spree of epic proportions, how the federal reserve bucked precedent and forever changed its role in the U S economy. The federal reserve is no longer the central bank. It used to be in a matter of weeks, the steadily expanding U S economy slipped into its worst recession in nearly a century. Tens of millions of Americans lost their jobs, spending froze and credit health tanked. While the Fed's response began with its traditional financial crisis playbook, pushing interest rates to the floor and buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, a shift was brewing. On March 20th, the monetary authority's role changed. The Fed announced it would begin buying corporate bonds for the first time in its 107-year history, offering aid for cash-strapped businesses, large and small. That facility marked a paradigm shift in the central bank's code and separated the Fed from its originally intended role in the U.S. economy. So there have been big changes and changes that have taken even Warren Buffett by surprise to the point where he's like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Until the financial crisis, the Fed's primary tool was its benchmark interest rate. When the 2008 meltdown hit, the 
rates were pushed to zero, Fed turned to the purchase of mortgage-backed securities and other unconventional assets. It goes down further in the article. I'm just skimming the highlights here. The Fed doesn't want to be seen as impeding market dynamics, but its move from stable treasury bonds to corporate credit has already changed valuations across the board of companies. It's talking here. In the days following the Fed's March 23rd announcement, corporate bonds retraced sharp declines. The stock market enjoyed an indirect boost as investors viewed the policy as a strong backstop for risk assets. When they say we're going to do it anything, we're going to spend every dollar to keep the economy up. You better bet people are open to buying. And so when you've got a, a guru like Warren Buffett that only buys when everyone else is not buying, he doesn't buy. The problem with official intervention in markets is you're no longer letting the market determine price. So what is the right valuation? Good point. So my question to you guys is, well, what is a more true value of where we stand? Is the this is at least how I look at it. Is the stock market the true value of our economy or are the job numbers and the economic numbers that come out the true value of our economy? And I believe the latter is the case. And so the number you're seeing on your stock portfolio right now is a completely manipulated number, right? Is that the true valuation? Absolutely not, right? This is because of a confidence built because the Fed has stepped in. Moving on, the central bank's purchases show no signs of stopping with five of its nine lending facilities yet to begin operation. Experts expect that Fed's holding to land between Fed's holdings to land between 7 trillion to 10 trillion by the end of the year, dwarfing the expansion seen during the financial crisis. They're not stopping on the spending spree in the US. And on the same note, while we're kind of on this category, we can also mention that the Bank of Canada, which is our Federal Reserve, if you will, our reserve system in Canada, had appointed a new governor of the Bank of Canada. His name is Tiff McLem. If you have not heard this name, that's fine. Neither had I. And so the directors of the Bank of Canada appointed under Section 9 of the Bank of Canada's Act today announced that they have appointed Tiff McLem as governor of the Bank of Canada for a seven-year term effective the 3rd of June 2020. Mr. McLem will succeed Stephen Pelos, who is leaving the Bank of Canada on June 2nd. So all the Stephen Pelosi or Pelosi, I don't know how you say his last name, but we see his name all the time as it comes to interest rates. That's where we kind of hear him in the news all the time. He's going to be stepping down and a new dude is being appointed. And from what I can see, he seems to be have been heavily involved in the Bank of Canada already. So he's not a new face to them. He's just a new face to us. And he's going to be the guy calling the shots on whether interest rates go up or down or all the other spending and all that fun stuff out of the Bank of Canada. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a lesson on why you're seeing this discrepancy in in the economy and in stocks. But here's the thing. It has a direct benefit. All this money that they're blowing and they're spending has a direct benefit on your real estate portfolio as well because it's giving an op- that optimism. We were talking about this optimism. It's creating a, whether it's a false or a real optimism is irrelevant, right? But it is creating an opti- optimism in our marketplace because people are feeling more wealthy, right? Like you have an investment and you were losing a whole bunch of money. If you were down, let's say 30%, you're going to be a little less likely to go out and, and spend or to purchase another property. Maybe you were saving it up, right? Whereas when it starts coming back up, there's a little bit more confidence in the market. And that's kind of where we're seeing that and how that all kind of links, at least in my mind. Don't forget to leave comments, guys. Make sure you leave us a review as well. We are Toronto's number one real estate podcast by name, and we are number one on Google Podcasts because you guys are awesome and because the content is awesome thanks to our local publishers and news outlets. And the fun thing is, is the more you kind of dive into these things, the early... 
the more you study the things that are coming out on a daily basis, the more you get some insight on what's going to come that maybe hasn't been said yet. And that's kind of what we're trying to do here. We're trying to be predictive in nature and get a step ahead in our investments. This is where investors get their information. And this is how investors think. This is how I think. And it's been a pleasure. And I look forward to this week because again, the Treb stats are coming out. It's going to be super exciting to see what they say. And so we can take next steps as we move along in the month of May. I'll see you guys next time. Take care and keep it real.